Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. Let's pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts to you even as we open up your word to us, and I pray that you work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I get it. I get it. Sometimes you're just crusty with someone. I get it. Sometimes you may even think that they're genuinely bad people. I, I do get it. But there is a line between being aware of the abyss, peering over into the abyss, obsessing over the, the abyss, and tumbling into the abyss yourself and becoming the very thing that you despise. This week, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. And... By most estimations, she had what you'd call a good run. I mean, that's 96 years old. She was queen for 70 years. Good run. I, I, I mourn her passing like I would mourn anybody. To be honest, I don't have strong feelings about the royals one way or the other. I have a couple of friends that are like, I'm crushed. Okay. Didn't think that many Americans would be, but okay. You know, I, I get that. And then there's the Nigerian-born Carnegie Mellon professor, Dr. Uju Aya, or Anya, who uh, tweeted, I heard that the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. Which some people took as insensitive. Uh, other people, I mean, uh, View co-host Sonny Hostin said, no, I get it, you know, I understand this. Carnegie Mellon said, okay, we're going to distance ourselves from this? No, we're going, to, we're going to condemn this wording. This was not appropriate. It does not reflect Carnegie Mellon. And uh, Uju Anya doubled down and said, if anyone expects me to express anything but disdain for the monarch who supervised a government that sponsored the genocide that, that massacred and displaced half my family and the consequence of which those alive today are still trying to overcome, you can just keep wishing upon a star. Like this queen actually supervised the government. But beyond that, is that what they're asking? Are they saying... Pretend that you liked her? Pretend that you wept at her passing? Or are they saying, hey, here's a thought. Maybe don't take to Insta-Face Twit with your hateful, hateful... I'm sorry, is there something more hateful than to go, I hope you die screaming? Your hateful comments that nobody asked your opinion on at a time when people are grieving. Maybe don't do that. I'm not asking you to pretend anything. Just don't rub salt in it. And I get, I get why a Nigerian-born professor might struggle to like a British queen. I totally get it. But my goodness, we justify hatred. And I don't just mean justify anger. I mean hatred. I pray she dies screaming is hate by any estimation. If, if we say, no, I think... Hoping that people die screaming is very Jesus Christian reflective. Maybe we should have a deeper Bible study, you and I, sometime. And if you find yourself going, no, this was totally horrible for her to do. Okay, what isn't? What are the things you chuckle at when somebody says? Because I keep hearing Christians do that. I keep hearing Christians from both sides of any given issue hating people from the other side, wishing ill. Just the other day, friends of mine were talking about the recent Supreme Court decision. 
and one said, oh, man, I wish all these rich old white Republicans could have gotten aborted back when we had a chance. Because it's funny. Somebody asked me not too awful long ago, I'm noticing that a lot of your sermons are about how we really shouldn't give in to really being hateful. Why is that? And I'm like, because we keep being really hateful and then laughing about it and justifying it because those people deserve it. They started it. I hate people who hate. That queen supervised hating and people hurting. So I want her to die screaming. And you go, so you're worse than she ever was. I don't know that Queen Elizabeth II ever sat there and went, I hope Nigerians die screaming. You're worse than she ever was. You have tumbled into the abyss. And you don't even see it. Help me, read Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Is that the Jesus school of thought? Where he says, you realize if you call your brother a fool, that's basically, you're, that's the same path as murder. Don't do that. Is that the Jesus school of thought? That's the Ujuanya school of thought. That's the, that's the 9-11 terrorist school of thought. It's okay to kill them. Remember? Remember? They said, it's okay. People said, but you killed innocents. And the official leadership said, there are no innocents. There is no innocent in the Twin Towers. That is the emblem of everything horrible about America. No, there, there are no innocents. We were justified in killing them. Men, women, children, anybody. We're justified. That's the Jonah school of thought. Because if you remember, as we're talking about Jonah, remember where we, what we've been talking about. I'll do just a tiny bit of background to remind us. But if you remember... We are, there we go, we, we are in Europe, and I would love to say in the Holy Land, but so far, we haven't spent much time there, because Jonah may have started off there, but then instead of going to Nineveh, like God told him to, on the Euphrates, 700 miles to the northeast, instead, he went 2,000 miles to the west, or at least he tried to, right? I'm going to go to Spain. Why? Because he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because Nineveh's the enemy. Nineveh's attack. Assyria has been attacking these people for generations. He didn't want to go preach to a government that had sponsored genocide, that massacred and displaced half his family, and the consequence of which those alive at that time were still trying to overcome, to coin a phrase. He wanted them to die screaming. Because that's the righteous thing. They deserved it, didn't they? Didn't they? Because you've got to remember, this is a story that isn't a fairy tale about whales swallowing people. There's not a whale in the whole story. This is a story about God's love, about his grace toward people who arguably didn't deserve it, including, including a prophet who thought that he personally could choose who deserves it or not. Jonah knew what the right thing was to do about Nineveh. He knew the righteous thing was to let God's righteous wrath fall on Nineveh. He knew it. It was the righteous thing. And he knew if he went to Nineveh, God would probably forgive him. Do the math. He knew God would not be righteous his righteousness was better than God's. 
And if you go, oh, Jonah, isn't that what the 9-11 terrorists did? Isn't that what we do when we say, man, I hope they die screaming? Man, I wish we could have just aborted those guys. When we justify any hateful little fun little comment, because let's be honest, those guys deserve it. Haven't you ever heard people use that kind of joking on any given side of a political, social issue? Or even just joking about that uncle that you never really liked? You've heard people do that, right? I don't mean people from the other side of the issue talking about yours. I mean people on your side of the issue talking about the other one. You've heard people do that, haven't you? Or are there times where you chuckled and you go, I didn't actually sink in that that's what they were doing. I don't want to do that. I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever, ever want to do that. So God hurled a storm at the ship that forced him to stop and Jonah was thrown overboard and got eaten by a fish to pull him back, right? To make sure he comes back. I have no idea how far he got into the Mediterranean. I don't know what God's going to have to do to make me turn direction when I'm going the wrong way. I don't know what he's going to do to you, but I'd rather not get eaten by a fish. Even if the fish is itself a gift. Because Jonah prayed an eloquent prayer where he said, this fish is a gift. You saved my life. They never asked for the fish. It's an unpleasant thing. I don't like sitting in a fish. I don't feel good. But I'd like to get out of the fish soon. But he said, I appreciate how gracious you are. Beautiful, eloquent prayer. All the while reminding God that just to be clear, pagans don't deserve this kind of grace. They forfeited it, right? I'd like you to get me out of the fish, but I also, in my eloquence, I want to remind you, God, that the Ninevites have forfeited any grace. That Make sure you do my righteous thing, God, but I will totally, I will totally promise to do the righteous thing that I think is righteous if you send me back. I'll do the righteous thing that I think is righteous. And the fish's response was to was to vomit. That was God's immediate response to this eloquent prayer, fish pukage. And then the very next verse, we're told that the Lord commanded the fish, it vomited Jonah on the dry ground, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Almost word for word what he said the first time, right? This is almost exactly. Get up right now, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their calamity has come up before me. Now, get up right now and go to the great city of Nineveh. Proclaim to it the message I give you. But for realsies this time, right? Honest to goodness. Now, if you're Jonah, what do you do? You've learned your lesson, right? God sent a gift fish to save you last time. He may not do that again. You're going to do the right thing. Give him credit. This time, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. By the way, here's the point where a lot of those people that complain about the whole, well, that's not what whales actually do, even though there's no whale in the, in the book, will also say, it's so ridiculous to think that somehow some fish from the Med- Mediterranean is going to swim up the Euphrates and just vomit them on the shores of Nineveh. Okay. I, I think it's possible. I don't know, but that's not what the Bible even said happened, is it? People, I don't believe this because that is unbelievable. You go, no, you pull that out because you didn't want to believe this because the Bible doesn't say anything about the fish vomiting at Nineveh. If anything, I would suggest the fish said, I'm going to vomit you back at Joppa where you got the, the boat in the first place. 
Because this is a straight up do-over, isn't it? Get up and go to Nineveh. No. Get up and go to Nineveh. Right? He's saying the same thing. I'm giving you a straight up do-over. In fact, the phraseology is like, get up and go to Nineveh. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. The phraseology suggests that he actually wasn't in Nineveh. And you might say, yeah, okay, I wasn't even thinking that. Please just remember this. Next time somebody goes, I just don't believe that unbelievable story. Apparently, it would help to read it before you decide. What did we talk about today in Sunday school? Actually listening, right? Not letting your brain get in the way of your brain understanding something. Of course, the phraseology also leaves us questioning what exactly is the message that God tells them to bring? Because it's very studiously not telling us, right? The writer of Jonah just says, and God says, tell them the message I give you. You go, what message is that? I'm not sure. We're going to have to figure that out from context clues. We're going to have to look at this and go, well, what, what is it that God actually told him? Well, Jonah uh, went to Nineveh, and Nineveh was a great big city, very important. It took three days to visit the city, to cover all of it. And on that first day, he started into the city. He worked his way from the suburbs, and he went in town, and he proclaimed, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. That's God's message. Which is kind of a succinct message when you think about it. It's just kind of... Why, why, why was God so insistent that Jonah make his way 700 miles, well, 2,700 miles. Why was he so insistent that he go there so he could tell them that in a month they're going to be destroyed? Actually, I should probably amend that because this is another one of those interesting words in Hebrew. The word itself literally just means overturned, flipped over. Now, it often means destroyed because, you know, most things, if you take them and go, whomp, it breaks them. Right? But it also can mean just everything's changed. Everything is the exact opposite of what it was before. In 40 days, everything is going to be completely different, which also sounds a lot like repentance or reformation. It's a 180-degree turn from what it was. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be turned upside down. But as short as Jonah's message apparently is, And given how the Ninevites respond, I'm pretty sure he was expressing it as, nope, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to fry. You're going to be destroyed. That's what everybody seemed to think he meant. But we already know that he knew full well that's not what God meant. Even if that is an interpretation of that word, he knew that wasn't what God meant by it, didn't he? Because the whole reason he left The whole reason he went to Spain, because he knew God probably wouldn't destroy them. He knew that what God meant was repentance and change and something different, and now you're looking at things from an upside-down good way. He knew, at the very least, he strongly suspected, and that is so not what he taught them. He gave them God's words and studiously avoided giving them God's message. I don't know, can Christians do that? Anytime that we, we're we good at quoting Bible verses and forgetting the whole heart behind them in the first place. 
So do you think that Jonah's going to be a very popular guy in Nineveh as he's walking around going, 40 more days, one more month, you guys are toast? Probably not. Because he's the enemy. We're told the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That is not what you would expect there, right? And again, this is people will come out of the woodwork and go, that's just unbelievable. No, no. Except we actually have secular history on this one. We actually have secular historical sources that go, yep, which I love. Nobody was taking photographs of the fish, but this one we actually know. Because we know historically that leading up, by the way, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I actually like history. I really do. Because history is this life, the good parts version. We know that up to this moment, the Ninevites had been experiencing horrible omens, eclipses and famines and droughts and diseases. And they were just, in fact, we were told that they were like a hop, skip, and a jump away from rebelling against their king. Which if you know anything about Assyrian society, that is almost unfathomable for them to think about rebelling against the king. But they're like, something is going horribly wrong. And it's not just we don't like the way the king is doing things or we didn't get our our daily ration. It's we're experiencing divine wrath for something and we don't know what it is. Everybody in Nineveh, everybody in most of Assyria, we're going, some god somewhere is really mad at us. And you ain't doing anything about it. We don't know what's going on. Which is interesting because it means that Yahweh has primed them. He's provided the gift fish of famine and eclipses and plagues. The gift fish of something they would have never asked for. But he provided this provision that primed them to not only expect a divine rebuke, but to want to hear it. We want to know what's going on so that we know what to change so that this stops. The worst people that Jonah could imagine in the world have been primed to actually listen to a god. They're like, somebody tell us something. And Jonah comes and goes, Yahweh. They were primed. Man of God who thought that he could outrun and thwart God. That's the guy who shares this. But this little book is filled with so much of the details about God's absolute sovereignty. He sovereignly provided a storm and then sovereignly provided a fish. Now sovereignly provides a lead-in to Jonah's preaching. All of this is all part of God's provision. Nothing is getting past God here. So you get, again, again, you get these pagans proclaiming the most all-encompassing repentance recorded in history. Much better than anything that anybody in Israel ever did. Look at it. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Take off all your clothes and put on scratchy burlap. How comfy is that? It's not supposed to be. You're supposed to be going, I'm uncomfortable. And it's not just the everyday Ninevites. It's everyone, all of them, from the greatest to the least. And that's just never done. I mean, maybe a prophet will do it. Maybe a lot of people will do it. But the idea that all the priests, the high priest, the king, very seldom. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, 
He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, clothed himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. The king of Nineveh, the monarch who supervises this horrific, sinful government, prostrated himself before Yahweh. Now, there was an annual ritual in Assyria where the king would step off the throne for a day let one of his ministers sit on the throne for a day, and he was supposed to be showing the gods that he's humble. This is not that. This is the king of Assyria saying, I'm stepping off the throne, and none of us is sitting on the throne. I'm not just stepping away and standing there and letting the minister pretend he's the king. I'm saying, Yahweh's on that throne. I'm in the dust. Pick on him all you want, but the king just said, I'm in the dust. What did they think that was going to accomplish? That Jonah said if they would just repent, everything would work? Then the king issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. Remind me, are you familiar with the climate of Assyria, i.e. Iraq? To say... Nobody's eating anything. Nobody's drinking anything. Until we figure this out. How intense would that be? But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Even the cows are wearing burlap. Again, do math. It's not just, oh, wow, even the cows. You go, wait, did the king officially put himself on cow level? The cows are wearing burlap and are in the dust. The king is wearing burlap and is in the dust. We are as humble as we can be and as genuine as we can be in this repentance. Let everyone call urgently on this God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Can, can, can maybe, could maybe we try to be as repentant as the pagan Ninevites as Christians? No, no, no. Sometimes violence is appropriate. Nope, no, you just don't understand. Those people are so foul. No, I wish them ill. I'm a good Christian, and I know righteousness, and righteousness says I should hate those people. Can we please, as Christians with the Holy Spirit in us, please be at least as repentant as the pagan Ninevites? Maybe, please, please, is there a reason why Jesus said, Nineveh will say you guys stink at this? Please. Please can we work on this? Please. I don't ever want to hear another Christian justify hating anybody ever again. Please. But maybe I'm being unclear. Can we please repent of all this violence, he says. And here's the, here's the, here, I love this. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. Who knows? He has zero guarantee that this is going to work at all. Jonah sure hasn't told him it will. Right? The man of God never said nothing about it. They're going, who knows? 
Jonah said, 40 more days, months from now, you guys are going to fry. And he says, who knows? Maybe. And for the second time in this book, we see that a prophet of God had no desire to share God's gracious forgiveness, and yet the pagans keep getting it right. They keep stumbling into it. The pagan sailors had faith in Yahweh. The pagan king puts his faith in Yahweh. And what's interesting is, he goes, who knows? God may yet relent. He didn't even realize it, but he's quoting Joel, isn't he? You remember Joel, the guy who's prophesying at the exact same time that Jonah is? Joel, who said, the day of the Lord is great, it's dreadful, who can endure it? But even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Nobody told Nineveh to do that. Joel's talking to somebody else, but Jonah could have said this. Jonah could have been the Joel of Nineveh, but he wasn't. Joel says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. God says, their calamity has come before me. Go and preach. Joel says, right, because God relents from sending calamity. He doesn't want to. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, Joel says. I cannot prove this. I will never be able to prove this. And I am generally loath to preach things that I cannot prove. I submit to you as a thought exercise that Joel is what Jonah was supposed to say to Nineveh. The reason I say that is because they use so much of the same wordage at so much of the same time. And the people of Nineveh, people of Nineveh still got the message from God they got it in spite of Jonah instead of because of him. There are two constants in the universe that struggle in our minds. We focus so much sometimes on God's love that it can come off as either overly warm and fuzzy or, 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 or we, we focus so much on it that it, it becomes a divine doctrine instead of something real. Or we focus so much on God's wrath that we... I can't picture his love at all. But biblically, we need to be able to realize God's wrath and realize his love at the same time. We need to have the full weight of biblical truth about the wrath of God so that we understand the biblical truth about the love of God. Because the only thing in creation more powerful than the thunderous, dreadful wrath of God is the all-consuming, never-ending love of God. We have to understand God's wrath. We have to be able to appreciate it. If we try to remove it from the equation, we just left with a warm and fuzzy, vapid God. But when we see a God of wrath, we can go, ah, he's a hateful God. You go, never, never. His wrath is so powerful that if we can wrap our heads around it even a tiny bit, then we can begin to grasp, as Paul said in Ephesians, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses understanding, that surpasses knowledge, that passes what we can grasp. To grasp the bare beginnings of what we can't grasp. To realize that it took a bulwark of love to stand against the genuine righteous wrath of God. 
Jonah couldn't even begin to see that. All he saw was wrath and that it was justified. And wrath that is justified then justifies hatred. And hatred justifies ignoring God because God's love will ignore his wrath and so we can ignore God. Jonah didn't understand grace. The idea of saying, I'm genuinely angry at you with genuine reason and it doesn't affect my love of you at all. I don't hate you. I'll love you. I'm angry. You deserve wrath. But praise God, he doesn't always give us what we deserve. And I love you. That's a hard thing. I think it's hard for Christians to understand. It's certainly hard for Jonah to understand. But how important is it that you and I understand grace that is greater than all our sin? How important is it that Uju Anya understand it? Or Donald Trump understand it? Or Will Smith understand it? Or you and I understand it? That just because I'm angry doesn't mean I'm right. And even if I'm right, it doesn't mean it justifies what I do in my anger. Because the overriding principle has to be God's love and God's grace. It has to be. Not a winking acceptance of sin, not dismissive, eh, what are you going to do? But grace that says this is bigger than wrath. And we're all called to be ambassadors of that world-changing grace. Well, Jonah says, when, when God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and didn't bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Not that he had planned, that he had threatened. He didn't bring upon them the warning that he was dangling in front of them to get their act right. He'd used his words carefully. He said in 40 days they'd be turned upside down. And look, they were. It was up to them whether that meant to be destroyed or to be repentant. But in 40 days they were not going to be the same. You're never supposed to listen to the word of God and stay the same. He showed a gracious compassion on them. Gave him a chance to live it out, just like he'd done with Jonah by giving him a fish. So, of course, Jonah was offended, right? Genuinely offended. Because he had earned that grace and they had not. We're told Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Because he knew what they were going to do. And he prayed to Yahweh. Second prayer. First prayer was, I'm drowning in the fish and I'm drowning in the... In the and wrapping the seaweed around, but thank you for the fish. This is his second prayer. And he prays to Yahweh, and he says, Oh, Yahweh, isn't this what I said was going to happen when I was still at home? That is why I went to Spain. I didn't just avoid going to Nineveh because I was comfy there in Jerusalem. I didn't avoid going to Nineveh because I was afraid of the Ninevites. I didn't avoid going to Nineveh because I thought it might be difficult. I avoided going to Nineveh because I wanted them to die screaming like they should have. You're doing it wrong. You should have listened to me. That's his prayer to Yahweh. I knew, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, that you're slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. The only time in Scripture that that's ever expressed negatively was from the mouth of a man of God. An ambassador 
don't ever want to be that. Ever want to be that. He's quoting a psalm that was excited about it. Joel quoted the same psalm and he was excited about it. Jonah said, I appreciate it when this was directed toward me and I hate it when it's directed toward people I don't like. I was appreciative before and now I'm disgusted. Be honest. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever tap danced in your brain when somebody finally got what they deserved? Have you ever fantasized about somebody? Oh, I hope they get what they deserve. I hope they get what's coming to them. Have you ever sat there and said, God, I think this is wrong. It's just wrong. You know what's interesting? Maybe I'll end with this. I think part of what it was is that Jonah didn't realize that he was a gift fish. He was that unpleasant thing that the Ninevites would have never asked for, that God used to save them. God provided a storm. God provided a fish. God provided a backdrop from Jonah's message. God provided the message God provided Jonah. And Jonah couldn't accept any of it. It's 9-11 today, so maybe I'll do it this way. On that day, the two kinds of people that most stand out in my memory were the people who decided to fly planes into public buildings because they wanted to kill people because those people deserved it those people stand out in my memory. And there are people who ran into those public buildings that were in the process of burning and falling down because there were people that they didn't know but could still save. Those kind of people stuck in my memory too. Jonah was one of those people. Joel was the other. Which one do we want to be? The kind that justifies our hate, or the kind that says, I don't even know him, but if I can save him, I'm running in. Be an ambassador. 